Welcome to Capital Markets Pulse, a podcast series exploring all things related to the capital markets from the public company audit profession perspective. I'm Julie Bell Lindsay, CEO of the Center for Audit Quality, the voice of public company auditors in the U.S. Public company auditors are vital to the efficient functioning of capital markets and building trust in company-reported financial information. But amid international conflicts, ongoing inflation, and business transformation, the markets that public companies tap into remain complex and ever-evolving. A recent survey of audit partners conducted by the CAQ found that the outlook for our economy remains pessimistic and that business leaders are making significant shifts to their human capital strategies to mitigate negative impact. Today, I'm joined by two people with unique insights into the state of our capital markets. First, Janet Malzone is Grant Thornton's National Managing Partner of Audit Services and a member of the firm's senior leadership team. In this role, she oversees the growth and operations of Grant Thornton's audit services offerings, as well as its continued focus on audit quality and innovation. Janet has 30 years of public accounting and audit experience serving public and private companies. Second, we have Amanda Iacone. Amanda is a journalist at Bloomberg Tax covering the world of audit, accounting, and financial reporting. Amanda career has spanned print, web, and radio. Before joining Bloomberg Tax, she covered state government and politics for various media outlets, including WTOP and the Associated Press. Welcome, Janet and Amanda, and thanks for being here today. Thanks, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here and talking with you and the CAQ and Amanda. Hi, Julie. Hi, Janet. Great to be with you both today. So let's dive right in. And Janet, I'm going to start with you and talk about the economic outlook. Audit Partners' overall economic outlook is gloomier than not. What are you hearing from Audit Partners? And can you explain what's driving their pessimism? Yep, that's that's a great question. And, you know, I do believe when you look at the pessimism and the lack of optimism, I'm not really surprised to see that that come up. Because the companies that our audit partners are talk are talking to and representing, they've been experiencing crisis after crisis. Think about it from the start of the pandemic to then we went to how do we work together in this new environment? We've and then we turned into labor shortages, and then it was a war on talent, and then we're talking about how to come back, and then. Now, then you started to see a glimmer of hope, right, of we're getting through the pandemic. What happens? Political unrest, a war. We've got now the economy coming at us. So it's just been crisis, crisis, crisis. So there's no wind in our sails. So it's just a constant burden of what's the next thing. And just when you think you're done with one, something else is on the horizon. Another catastrophic thing could be heading our way. So I think that's where that uh, pessimism is coming from. I think the point that we haven't had wind behind our sails in some time is a great way of of summarizing that. You mentioned the great resignation, labor, and human capital. Let's talk about that in a little bit more detail. One thing we've noticed since our spring 2022 survey is that labor strategies really are shifting. A year ago, organizations were focused on attracting talent with things like better compensation and workplace flexibility. Our spring 2023 survey shows that these strategies have really taken a dive as more organizations are reducing headcount. Janet, does this correlate with what Grant Thornton is seeing? Yes, we are seeing it. We're seeing it across our client base. We're seeing it in the industry, and you'll see that in the press. And it is, it's happening so fast. And it, it's almost like the speed of change is, and the, the events that are happening, the speed of change, and we'll talk about technology, everything is shifting. And it is, it is like a little bit of a whiplash, right? When you see how fast those numbers change from the top 
thing we're focusing on less than a year ago of attracting, once again, we had the talent shortage. And when we had that, when everybody's experienced record turnover, everybody was grabbing people as fast as they could. And when everybody's grabbing and trying to grab talent, what happened? Supply and demand, economics, the cost of labor went up dramatically. So everybody's fighting over a small pool of resources. We're grabbing them. Prices went high. And then the economy was doing okay, right? So everybody's like, okay, we hired the people. We're digesting the cost of labor. And then all of a sudden now those new things happen. Oh, now we've got inflation. Things are happening. Spending was slowing. And now so fast you realize I have a problem on my hand. I overhired. The cost of labor is now more expensive based on the demand. So now the supply and demand switched really fast again. Now it's what we're hearing in our surveys from the CEOs is how do we control costs? So we literally just six months ago went and hired as many people at a very high rate. And now we're like, now I got to focus on costs. And where does that happen? It's happening in the headcount. And, but it is so fast, the speed of change. So it is now a focus of the C-suite. And I thought it was interesting, you know, how fast companies are making decisions that C-suite are saying, how fast do I have to react? That there was this new report I saw from Oracle, and it said that 85% of business leaders have suffered from decision distress, right? Regretting, feeling guilty about a question or a decision they made in the past year. And look at what's happened in the past year, how fast you did have to make those decisions, which caused an unintended consequence, right? Of we thought we made the right decision here, and now we're dealing with the outcome of that. So it's it's a very strange dynamic that we're seeing and how fast it's happening. Let's continue on the topic of human capital and talk about something that's near and dear to the CAQ and our members' hearts, which is the accounting profession pipeline. We have not been immune to our own talent challenges. When asked about concerns about the accounting pipeline, 85% of audit partners responded that businesses within their sector were somewhat too greatly concerned about the accounting shortage. Amanda, I'm going to bring it to you now. I know that this has been a topic you've reported on previously. What are you hearing from stakeholders with regards to concerns about the accounting shortage? Sure. Well, Janet mentioned the small pool of talent resources that companies at large were grappling with over the last few years, but that continues to be the status quo for accounting. Um, regulators, firm leaders, academics, career coaches, up and down the pipeline, um, corporate leaders are concerned about filling seats, about maintaining quality, about being able to do the work they currently have, um, in addition to work that they would like to do, um, whether that's a CPA firm taking on new clients or whether or not that's a corporate entity trying to take on more more roles in the company like ESG reporting, for example. And the profession really faces sort of uh, this talent shortage from, from two fronts. You know, it's, it's challenged in both attracting new CPAs to the field, but also the risk of losing experienced accountants from the great, uh, you know, resignation from, you know, post-pandemic career changes, but also, you know, through natural retirement as well. But the bulk of the focus of the profession has really been on the shrinking pipeline. Um, the number of CPA candidates has dropped since 2016. We continue to see fewer accounting graduates, and now post-pandemic college enrollment is is trending down really at, at large, not just among accounting majors. Firms are now looking outside the U.S. to find accountants, and the AICPA just said it would explore 
offering the CPA exam, the U.S. CPA exam in the Philippines um, as a, another step to bolster supply. In that same vein, the AICPA unveiled a detailed plan earlier this month to help reignite interest in accounting careers. That plan includes efforts to help students obtain the credit hours they need and to help them sit through and pass the notoriously difficult CPA exam. Other efforts include targeting middle school and high school students, trying to really sell them on the idea of accounting earlier in their education. There have also been efforts at the state level as well to combat the shortage. Virginia, for example, has called for a national discussion about the 150-hour rule. That's the requirement for an extra 30 hours of college education beyond a traditional bachelor's degree to be eligible for the CPA license. And Minnesota lawmakers earlier this year introduced legislation that would provide an alternate path based on a four-year degree rather than the 150 hours. And, you know, as I said, this has the attention of regulators who are concerned about what staffing shortages might mean for audit quality, for example, but also to financial reporting. I mean, this if companies don't have the accounting staff they need, there could be fraud risks, error risks, um, you know, it, it could it could weaken financial reporting quality as well. Amanda, I think you definitely hit on the fact that this is a multifaceted issue. There are so many factors that go into the shortages that we're seeing in the talent pipeline. And you also hit on what I'm hearing a lot of, which is maintaining audit quality with the shortage. So Janet, how is Grant Thornton reacting to this pipeline issue? And and what are you doing to address the talent shortages you're seeing? I tell you this, uh, Amanda, you hit every single point of the, you know, identifying the issues, where we're looking, how we're doing it, and understanding it, it's it's a two-pronged approach. Because of course, um, from where I sit at Grant Thornton, providing the quality financial reporting is key. So we've got to manage that. But it's also something I'm going to start with, it's a profession issue. And that's what we were saying. This is across the profession for the industry, for public accounting, for our clients who are looking for um, accountants. So this, this is a huge, a huge problem, and it's something we cannot do on our own. Grant Thornton by themselves are not going to be able to do it. Um, so I love the partnership with the Center for Audit Equality with the Accounting Plus Initiative, and that is a starting point. And it's also with the AICPA societies. It's also with all of the accounting programs of how do we get a different base? How do we change the funnel? Because right now, the diversity in accounting hasn't changed. We've been focusing on it for years and years and years, but it hasn't changed in like 10, 15 years. You look at the numbers, it's not changing. So we're not getting the funnel right. The funnel is not changing. I think there's a whole group of people who could be interested, but how do you get interested if you don't know an accountant? Thinking about you know where uh, Accounting Plus Initiative is going after that diverse student, you got to get them in that middle school. You got to get them in high school. Because right now we're all fighting over the pool of people who have chose accounting, right? So we're like, well, that's who selected accounting. And that's my, everybody's going after that group. We've got to change the outcomes. So it is something we're looking at as an industry. We're all in of how do we do that? And had some amazing conversations of how do we get to that different level of student? We're looking at things like going down to the community colleges, looking at the high schools. How do we invest there doing it? individually as Grant Thornton and as an industry, because we have to partner at a larger level. 
So going back to what we're doing, I told you we're talking about looking at the outreach differently of where we're partnering with programming, working with schools. Is there a way to change our outcome with that 150 hour? Can we do more with our internship program? Because we're seeing some ways to do that. And it's really looking at, do they have to be a CPA? Going back to we have to still apply judgment. I have to have a base of CPAs because I have to provide an opinion on gap financial statements to our regulators, to our banks, and all the users. However, is there a band of that work that I could use a different skill set? Also, love the speed of which technology is coming in because that, that's actually solving part of the problem. I won't need as many people, right, if I'm using the technology as fast as I can. So it's helping get that intersection in place. So we're looking at upskilling our people, looking at different ways to train people. If I'm not bringing in a CPA candidate right from school, maybe I'm bringing somebody, somebody with a different set of skills, get them engaged and upskill them and train them and get them there and get them interested in the program. So mentorship, ba badging, trainings. But what it really is, it's making us change all of our training from internship all the way through the ranks because the work that we're doing is different the speed at which we have to get there is different. The, the ultimate thing that we do for the capital markets is the safeguarding the capital markets with that fin quality financial reporting. And the regulators ask us this question all the time. Tell us about your turnover. Tell us what you're doing with technology. Tell us how we're doing that. So it is a, I think I do something in this area daily, thinking about our headcount of the resourcing, the training. We are going international. We have um, we have our service centers that support us. So that's a great, so we have to look at it differently and the model changes and we've got to be open to a new model of where the work is done, who's doing the work and how we train them. So it's a lot. There was a lot there, Julie and Amanda, and we could probably have a whole session just on this. Well, maybe we should do that. That's that's a great idea. And, and thank you for mentioning Accounting Plus and Grant Thornton's support of our Accounting Plus initiative. I, I do believe that Accounting Plus is a first-of-its-kind campaign as a multi-stakeholder, multi-year approach to brand awareness, really raising awareness about a career in accounting and where it can take you. So very much appreciate it. And if any of our listeners want to learn more about our campaign, please visit joinaccountingplus.com. Shifting back to some of the themes in the Audit Partner Survey, let's talk about some risks that audit partners are seeing. And one risk that is kind of not a risk is around China, which I found to be very interesting. The survey found that 69% of audit partners reported that businesses and in their industry sector do not have significant exposure to China. Amanda, you've reported on this recently. What else are you hearing about companies with operations based in, in China? Are they making plans to limit their exposure, particularly given this political environment that we're in? Sure. Great question. I thought it was interesting that the flip side of that question was that of partners with clients that did have exposure, supply chain disruptions and the threat of trade restrictions were among their top concerns. Trade tensions between the U.S. and China remain high, and lawmakers here on Capitol Hill are very engaged in this area. They have pressed large American companies about their supply chains, including how they avoid the use of forced labor in certain parts of China. And companies are starting to weigh whether to find alternatives to China for sourcing their products. 
But that sort of change can be costly and time consuming. Uh, supply chains can take years to develop. And, and switching to a different jurisdiction, even another country in Asia, I would add that it's not just uh, lawmakers, but shareholders too are concerned about the risks that U.S. companies uh, face from operating in China or from sourcing in China, including the, again, that issue of forced labor. And, and corporate ties to the Chinese Communist Party. These are sort of reputational issues, but but lawmakers and investors are, are, are aligned with these concerns. I will note that when we're talking about risks, one of the risks that has been out there for several years is the risk that Chinese stocks, not, not necessarily American companies with Chinese operations, but Chinese stocks that are listed here in the U.S., were uh, facing potential trading bars because of issues related to audit transparency and compliance with U.S. securities laws. Over the past year, we have seen some Chinese stocks voluntarily pull their listings from U.S. exchanges and sort of hoping to preempt um, being forced out. In particular, several state-owned enterprises last year pulled out of New York. Others may have dual-listed some argue that they're actually U.S. companies. They would not be subject to a training bar under a 2020 U.S. law known as the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. But for right now, that delisting threat remains a distant one for these Chinese companies. The U.S. audit regulator has said it has the access it needs, it has the transparency it needs, and was recently able to inspect two big four affiliates based in China and Hong Kong last fall. The regulator also was able to launch several investigations into the work of Chinese auditors. And it really, as long as the, the regulator, the public company accounting oversight board continues to get that level of access, that level of cooperation, that, you know, that risk of a, a trading bar will be small. Yes. Chair Williams has been very adamant that the cooperation needs to continue with regards to the inspections program. Another risk that was prevalent and discussed in the audit partner survey was cybersecurity. Janet, I'm going to come to you to talk about this issue. We continue to observe that companies, according to the auto partners, are only moderately prepared for a cyber attack, which is somewhat of a surprise given this has been such an issue for so long and we've seen quite a few attacks over the past several years. How can auto partners continue to work with companies to prepare them in this space? Yeah, and I was a little surprised by this feedback as well because it has been such a focus in all the boardroom conversations. We're talking about it. And are those charged with governance? We're always talking about this. So it is, when you look at C-suite and board, they say it's a top issue. So everybody's got concern over it. So why are we still seeing that gap between, we know it's a risk, but are we prepared enough? And I think it goes back to some of the complexity. Also the speed of change here. Just looking at, I've got a, a client that I've seen go through this exercise a couple times of they're going through the cybersecurity framework and they judge themselves on it, right? So they get their ratings and they and you have to pick where you're going to spend the money. We don't have an unlimited bucket of money where we can just spend on every single risk because there are you know five or six broad categories. So they judge themselves externally and how they, they stood up to it a year ago. They focused on those areas, redid the analysis. And since the bar moved, they're still not where they want to be. So the bar does keep changing on the, there's new risks, the speed at which it can happen. And so the testing looks a little different. So I think you're always chasing it as, as one point, right? 
So I think everybody needs to make sure they're measuring themselves, making sure they've got that framework put together and they are looking externally. How am I, if I looked at my peer group, what are their ratings in this area? When I'm talking to a cyber specialist, so we have cyber specialists and you could, having that external view that you are benchmarking appropriately in all the different areas on a standardized framework. And then, then dig a little deeper and make sure you've got the right resources. Like, do you have your chief information security officer? Are they actually coming in? Is that voice as strong at the table? Are they in those conversations to make sure we've got the true perspective? Are we doing enough scenario planning for a cyber attack? Because I think it all boils down to, if you haven't had one, you're going to have one. The question is when, where, how severe, what would that do to your brand? What is your biggest asset that you're trying to protect? Your technology, your brand, the information you receive. So that you should be making sure when you're doing your annual or you know how you're doing your uh, enterprise risk management, how, how are you doing that? How often are you updating it? Do you have the right people going back to, do I have my, my technology person? Do I have someone who's speaking to that risk that really has that external view of what's changing, what's out there? Am I responding fast enough for the incident uh, planning? You should be doing scenario planning. You should be doing some desktop reviews of what happens with your whole leadership team. And I think if maybe you change, you know, make sure you've got that benchmark, challenge your thinking, get that external view and really be thinking what, like we talked about earlier, how bad could it be? Have you really done that scenario planning? The unthinkable, did you do that scenario planning? Because I can tell you all the things that have happened recently, I don't know if I would have put it on my scenario plan of how bad could it get. So it's really challenging that and maybe have it and also getting, hey, I want to talk to my accounting firm in general about these risks. How could we do that? What have you seen? Give me some more information because we need to plan better and, and always know the bar's moving. So I think that's part of that gap that's going to continue. I think that's a really astute observation in that the speed at which bad actors can take action is continuing to be very, very quick and the methods as well. Janet, you alluded earlier to technology, another key area our survey explored. Last year, our survey found that public companies, and especially those in the financial services and technology sectors, were embracing or considering embracing cryptocurrency. However, since that time, we've had the collapse of FTX and other crypto exchanges. So our survey this spring found that sentiment towards crypto has significantly cooled. Amanda, what are your thoughts on the future of crypto based on your reporting? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Janet just rattled off a couple of buzzwords, right? Risk management, board involvement, oversight. A lot of that has been missing from uh, certainly FTX's bankruptcy exposed that those really important safeguards were missing at that particular company. It was really an important reminder of how important it is for a company to have an independent board, to have controls, to keep accurate accounting records, and what can happen when those safeguards are missing. It's also a reminder of just how nascent this industry is, this technology is. The shortcomings we saw at FTX aren't uncommon in the crypto space. That's in part because many of these companies are still very young. They're very new. Those shortcomings can be a 
barrier when companies, for example, are looking to hire an auditor. You know, there's been a lot of back and forth between whether or not audit firms are capable of, of auditing these companies, these cryptocurrencies. But, you know, audit firms have argued that they can and they do audit crypto companies, crypto related businesses, crypto assets. Some firm leaders have even said that, you know, they expect companies to put in a certain amount of work before they would consider taking them on as a client. Things like setting up a board, having the right personnel on staff, like hiring key accounting staff, for example. Again, because this is such a nascent industry, you know, we're still missing clear accounting rules, for example. Know that those are being worked on. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. It's still unclear how exactly U.S. securities laws might apply to some of these companies. There's a quite a number of uh, court cases that are underway right now that are testing out <laughs> how exactly those securities laws will apply. And there's even, uh, uh, you know, regulatory oversight questions as well that that Congress may or may not weigh in on. So it, it's a it's a really it's very fluid. It's very dynamic, and there's still a lot of risks related to um, this sector. If if you're the SEC, they see risks all over the place. Um, there's risks for auditors and how they approach these cons. You know, we I, we should note that the Financial Accounting Standards Board has proposed accounting rules that would allow companies to book their crypto holdings at fair value allowing those assets to rise and fall with the market, providing a more clear picture of their worth. It, those aren't final yet. Um, it's possible that we could see renewed interest from companies that may want to accept cryptocurrency as a form of payment once those rules are finalized. But, you know, the SEC has also weighed in with um, certain accounting guidance that apply to certain companies and you know the commission continues to aggressively pursue what it sees as violations of federal securities laws in this area. Absolutely. It's an area where there's been a lot of attention both on the Hill and from a regulatory and standard setter perspective. A lot of work and efforts going into this area. Another area of technology is artificial intelligence or AI. And I just read an article this morning that says AI is the new ESG. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but AI is experiencing a watershed moment with the advent of programs like ChatGPT. Janet, what trends are you seeing in terms of businesses using AI? And then separately, do you think the audit profession can benefit from AI? I think you're already using it in some respects. Well, let, let's start with the businesses and then move over to the industry and auditing because uh, we have had AI for years. We're seeing some new developments, which are very exciting. But going back to AI has been used in businesses and a lot of people have adopted these. Think about it in a couple pillars. We've got the automation, right? And the analytics and then insights. Probably everybody's using this. When you really think about, are you using it with your sales effort, with you know sending out emails, looking at demand forecasting, right? Of what's and scoring the leads if you're out there trying to do sales. People are using intelligence, right? already that that sort of machine learning in marketing there you're doing competitor analysis you don't have individuals out there scouring the internet it's pulling that information and giving you like here's the trends that we're seeing uh search engine optimization right everybody's like who's tagging me how do i get my you know someone's searching these keywords how do i make sure i get there so that is all happening in the background uh customer service support obviously we're getting feedback how many how many chat bots and stuff do you go instead of remember when I used to call and get a live person I got to go through a chat bot 
that's using AI. So operations, inventory management, getting the data analytics, a lot of this information is getting processed. We're using this intelligence. Uh, HR, recruiting, how do we screen and find out who we're going to go try to go get in the marketplace? It, we're, we're scouring the internet um, and the intelligence. So all of this is happening. So there's a ton of use cases happening in companies, in automation, analytics, and getting the insights to make business decisions. It's everywhere. And now it's like, let's use what we've learned adopting this technology to then turn to like a chat GPT. How did I adopt this intelligence to then adopt this to, to speed up some of these things? So we do have good, we've got controls over the technology. We're going to have to put the box around it. What have we learned? How do I process it? Do I need a public one? Do I need my own so I can feed it my own information? Or do I trust the information that's out there? So we've got to be careful of how we're developing it, but we know how to use it. We're going to accelerate it. So now turn it to the accounting profession. All the, all the firms use it in all these areas already, thinking about it. We're all technology firms at heart, right? Of I use this to do my sales, my marketing, my customer support, my operations, my you know, uh, capital, human capital. But we're also already using it in the audits, if you think about it, the automation. How am I getting the information from my client? How am I making risk-based decisions? How am I doing analytics on the whole ledgers to get to making sure I'm scoping my jobs correctly, making sure I understand where the risk is, taking leasing contracts and a machine reads it and tells me what the key terms are. So there, we're you all... The firms, we're using this every day. Everybody's asking, so what, what's going to happen? Is chat GPT is going to take out the profession? Now, I think it's going to accelerate the profession. And I don't know if you saw the article that got written with interviewing chat GPT. And it said, no, we're not, we're not going to replace the accounts because we're going to help you get to the judgment areas. Going back to, I need it. I still have to apply GAP. Everybody you know, was like, hey, it failed the CPA exam. You know, passed the bar and failed the C CPA exam today. It's going to keep learning. I think that was interesting, but going back to, it is a tool we're going to use, get to the risky areas, going back to what is our job for the capital markets, quality financial reporting. We want to be able to get to those judgment areas, the risk areas, get that analysis done using automation, analytics, getting there faster. And I think that's a good balance to what we're seeing in the profession. We're going to have, if we're having less come in, but I'm going to have better tools to get to the risky areas to apply judgment. That's what we got to train our people on. How do I use these tools to the best of their ability? How do I control the information that's coming in so I can make good decisions? And then how do I make those decisions? How do I then take that and then have the conversations to get to the place where we all have the best information to make better decisions? So I think it's going to help us get to better quality faster. I love what you said, Jana, and that it's not going to replace accounting. It's simply going to amplify it. Well, that wraps up our questions for today. Thank you, Jana and Amanda, for joining us today. We appreciate your perspectives on the survey results. And thank you to all of you for listening to our guest insights on the CAQ's 2023 Audit Partner Survey. Tune in for the next Capital Markets Pulse podcast at CAQ.org or find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.